Welcome to the Democracy Group, a network of podcasts about democracy, civic engagement, and civil discourse. In this feed, you will find a sampling of episodes from our podcast and the Democracy Group, as well as recordings from our events. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please visit democracygroup.org to find more like this. Now let's get to our featured episode. I'm Emily Burl. And I'm Siva Vadianathan. And live from Lighthouse Studios, Vinegar Hill Theater in Charlottesville, Virginia, this is Democracy in Danger. Thank you. Thank you. It's so good to be here with you for this special episode that we're recording at the Karsh Institute's three-day forum called Democracy 360. Let's dive right in, shall we, Siva? Today, we are talking women, feminism, and history, pretty much my favorite topics. And we're talking about media, film and print to be exact. So to help us pull all these strands together, we have invited two outstanding thinkers to join us on the stage today. Indeed, we are delighted to be here with Jennifer Weiss-Wolf, a legal expert and the author of the groundbreaking book, Periods Gone Public, Taking a Stand for Menstrual Equity. Jen is also a contributor to Ms. Magazine and its executive Director of Strategy and Partnerships. She'll have a lot to share with us about a new volume celebrating the publication's 50-year anniversary and its role in shaping the feminist movement in the United States. We also have with us our dear friend and colleague, Samhita Sunya, a cinema professor at UVA. Samhita studies Hindi film and song in particular. She teaches and writes about their circulation across South Asia and beyond, and especially how gender has been represented in Indian film. She's the author of the 2022 book, Sirens of Modernity, World Cinema via Bombay. Samhita, Jen, a warm welcome to both of you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for hosting us. We're so glad to be here. Yeah, thank you. So glad this is part of the the weekend's program, too. Yeah, our Mm -hmm. our pleasure. Well, Jen, I'm going to start with you with a question that takes us back to the very first issue of Ms. We've got a picture of it up here behind us. Let me describe it for our listeners. It shows the figure of the Hindu goddess Kali. Uh, this, This figure has, of course, many arms. She's doing many different chores all at once, typing, ironing, cleaning, driving, cooking. And the headline above it says, The Housewife's Moment of Truth. So tell us about the genesis of this issue, Jen. It's January 1972. What's going on in the country? What was going on in the feminist movement? And what was Ms. with this cover in particular stepping in to say? Okay, we're going to take it back 50 years. Um, I mean, me, for me personally, I was five. Um, and I, I actually wouldn't discover Ms. To, for probably about another decade more. I found it as a teenager in my public library. And I always actually love to talk to folks about where and how they might have found Ms. in their lives. But the way I think about the country then and, and the feminist movement, um, I, I think of two words. I, they're both righteous. I think about anger mm-hmm. um, and I think about optimism. Um, in, in 1972, there really was a groundswell of activism and, and political energy um, in the feminist movement in this country. And, and among the founders of Ms. Uh, Gloria Steinem included, they, they had also just created the National Women's Political Caucus. There was a real 
real push for political representation, for narrative storytelling. Um, and Gloria Steinem even wrote in, in the early issue, not this one, but the one that came next, she wrote, 1972 is when things are going to happen or something along those lines. Um, and it's true. Things were happening then. In 1972, Shirley Chisholm's historic run for the presidency, the first black woman on the ticket um, was, was a reality. It was happening in real time. The ERA passed the Equal Rights Amendment, passed the Senate in 1972. People thought there was really a path to sort of a quick ratification. Uh, shortly after the magazine was launched in January 1973, the Supreme Court decided Roe versus Wade. Um, I mean, we'll talk a little bit later about where we're at now and whether that righteous anger and that optimism was well-placed, misplaced. But that was part of the, the national story. In terms of the magazine, um, you know, there were a lot of ways that Feminism was sort of exploding into um, mainstream uh, discussions. The idea of a slick magazine was pretty novel. Um, mm -hmm. It would be competing with the likes of McCall's and Ladies Home Journal. This mm -hmm. this wasn't this wasn't really the medium in through which people saw feminism, you know, being distributed to the masses. Um, the magazine sort of struggled with what representation would look like, mm -hmm. what reflection would look like, what it would mean to fund a magazine like this. You know, all the different competing forces, whether it was financial, whether it was political, whether it was social, all of that was part of all of the early thinking about what it would mean to pull together and create a magazine like this. One of the things that's fascinating, when the first magazine um, was released, they were so worried, the founders, that people weren't going to buy it. It sold out in days. The cover is kind of an extraordinary story, too, and I can't wait to hear some heat views and thoughts um, about that. But the founders, um, and this is described in the book, really thought that this vision of the every woman, somebody that everybody could see a piece of themselves in or relate to in some way, her eight arms, as you point out, they're carrying lots of things. Most of them have to do with doing household work. And she's crying. She's apparently pregnant. The image was absolutely intended to be unifying um, and something that many people would see themselves in. The story um, and the lead story of the magazine, The Housewife's Moment of Truth. You might have just heard the phrase click. I always snap my fingers when I say click. Literally that moment of recognition that you are living in an unfair, unequal world. And that was what that piece was um, intended to, to reflect. It's actually a pretty radical piece too. There are a series of, of um, admonitions at the end of it to think radically, not accept no for an answer, things That's, like that. Yeah, and I mean, there's so much going on in that image and in that, that first issue, and you've just sketched out the history of that so clearly for us, Jen. But I'm wondering, Samhita, what you have to say uh, about the cover that we were just describing. Um, so we invited you here to talk about Hindi cinema and the way that gender has been portrayed in movies coming out of India um, since the mid 20th century. But we've got to start with your take on that cover. Tell us what you make of that imagery of Kali on the cover of the first Ms. magazine. Yes, thank you so much for inviting me to talk about this incredible cover, because I think it gets at something that is important for setting the landscape of this mid-century and particularly kind of long 1960s moment, which is the focus of much of my research. Um, so what you will see in this cover um, is 
these sort of bright colors, um, the figure of the Hindu goddess Kali, um, which is very reminiscent of a certain global visual culture and even youth culture of the 1960s. Um, and if you think about a U.S. context, much of that turn towards images of the East or even the kind of psychedelic movement um, was very much tied to this counterculture that was entangled in student protests, anti-war movements. And of course, there's, you know, a flattening of Kali, in some ways, naturalizing that to a quintessential Indian deity or figure. Though in the case of a country like India, um, one must also remember that India is also not reducible to only, say, uh, Hinduism, right. that it's an extremely like multi-ethnic, multilingual, multi-religious context. Um, the other thing that this image recalls to us is this Cold War moment when the world order really felt up in the air, that there's so many possibilities and disillusionment. So it's this really interesting time to also think about the intersection between popular media and popular politics. So it's this decade of so many movements, including in post-colonial or recently independent nations like India, um, sort of lots of foment on, you know, what does democracy look like or what shape can this new nation take? To me, my interest in cinema, which in many places in the world, there was no television. This mm -hmm. is hard for us to even imagine. Mm -hmm. So in that context, there's a way in which cinema takes a certain primacy as a uh, as a medium that was thought of as very powerful, whether for modernization, influence, etc. That's so let's talk a little bit about the Cold War, this context of the Cold War. I mean, one of the things that's so interesting and recognizable to a lot of Americans now is Bollywood. Bollywood becomes recognizable in the United States much later in the 90s. Um, but you say that its influence and popularity really begins in the mid 20th century. And that from the beginning, it's really inscribed with feminine images and values. So taking up this thread of uh, the women's movement in the United States, but also the way that the women's movement becomes a global phenomenon. What did this look like in India? Who was watching the movies? What is this inscription of feminine images and values that you described? Yeah, so the woman question, as sometimes it's termed is a key question in many contexts and particularly, again, in sort of newly independent nations. I'll come back to that in a second. Um, but Bollywood, which was a name that increasingly became the name attached to Hindi language popular films in the 90s, was often described as going global in that moment. Mm -hmm. um, though, in fact, these films were so popular, not only across India, where there are many other language film industries and audiences, but also outside of India in the Middle East, in many parts of Africa and Central Asia, um, throughout Eastern Europe. Europe and the USSR. Um, one of the other fascinating things is often in the 50s, 60s, there's a certain idealization of certain 
kinds of masculinity or femininity, one must be critical when that idealization is limited to a certain type of body or certain type of woman or man. So in Hindi cinema, middle class, upper caste, um, conventionally feminine in certain ways, popular Hindi films sort of ended up in this period being equated to the singing, dancing, feminine figure as the kind of primary attraction. And this led to a lot of debate, both on the one hand, sort of outrage over what some characterized as just like titillation and objectification that was a vulgar representation of Indian culture, so-called, to, um, you know, valorizations of like, this is a kind of liberated woman who's working in movies and performing. And I think the precise account of that takes into account like all of these contradictions and kind of contextualizes them. Um, on that note, I have a fun clip from Chintuji, which is a 2000s film that in some ways is an homage to this earlier period. Song! So this is a you know, very generically tribal sequence evokes some elements of a Pocahontas-like scene. It's a film shoot within the film where the chief is played by Rishi Kapoor, a major film star who plays himself as a third generation film star. And the film is in a way both a parody and an homage to uh, popular Hindi cinema in the world. So the, what the chieftain was uttering, and this is the joke in the film, is he says, Tarantino, Vittorio, Mizaguchi, Capola. And then the chorus of the song is Akira Kurosawa, Vittorio De Sica, Weiler Hitchcock, Waida, goes on and on. <laughs> Um, but how do you understand a sequence like this? What is the point? Well, one is it's a parody, uh, mostly this kind of mid-century moment where you have the emergence of an auteur or director-driven art cinema as world cinema. The kind of joke here is you have like... Uh, an attractive woman dancing and that whole masculine canon of world cinema gets reduced to tribal gibberish. But in actuality, uh, the film is actually an homage through the invocation of um, Rishi Kapoor's father, the late Raj Kapoor, who was a huge star, again, in these other parts of the world, like Eastern Europe, the Soviet Union, Middle East, etc. Um, to basically say that Hindi cinema and world cinema as art cinema so-called we're both so engaged in the world and there are things to love about like all of this despite the historical polemics between them as they especially unfolded around debates over women's sexuality and performing women well and this is fascinating because at this very moment right uh the the late cold war period as ms magazine 
becomes an important voice on this continent, what we see is almost uh, subversive images flowing through popular media in ways that can't be spoken overtly, or or there's a hesitancy to speak it overtly in the same way that Ms. Magazine is doing here. So, Jen, can you talk about the work that Ms. did in the 70s? How did Ms. change the agenda, the political agenda, the social agenda, the sense of what is possible for women in America? Yeah, it's such it's actually such a neat connector, the bridge between, you know, an homage and a parody and the celebration or or rejection of women's sexuality, like all of those conflicts, I think, are part of what it means to produce feminist media writ large, especially 50 years ago. You know, it's funny because I will say Ms. was was funny. There was actually a sense of humor to it. It's not all just, you know, I'm going to talk about some deep things too, but one of one of my favorites. Feminists are funny. Feminists are funny. <laughs> There's there actually a cover that had a comic, you know, questioning that that premise. But one of the funnier lines actually is just the title of Ms. is, is a word um, that was not part of the vernacular. Um, it took it took more than 15 years from the time that Ms. Magazine was published for the New York Times, otherwise paper of record, to use the word Ms. And Gloria Steinem would often joke that she was referred to in the Times as Miss Steinem from Ms. Magazine. Um, <laughs> but that, that you know, the, the idea of creating vernacular, of creating images, you know, and what people would see when they would see that magazine on the newsstand that they would walk by was game-changing. And so too was the reporting. Part of part of the reason I think the reporting was and continues to be so impactful is that it's not just regular beat journalists who are doing the writing for Ms. It was advocates. It was people in the field. It was activists and continues to be to this day. It was scholars. Um, it was teenagers. Um, it was people really from all stripes telling these stories. In the 70s, um, two really important issues that were that were not part of everyday reporting or the vocabulary that we had were around domestic violence um, and around sexual harassment in the workplace. Uh, so those are two issues that had um, really striking covers, uh, a woman with a black eye or full face when we're, you know, again, accustomed to seeing Vogue magazine and or Seventeen magazine or whatever. A lot of the um, issues and ideas that were covered in the 70s and, and through the decades um, are now things that maybe we take for granted are talked about um, nationally and globally. In the 80s, um, Ms. through polling that it did um, on college campuses about sexual assault, um, came up with the phrase date rape. That just mm -hmm. wasn't something that was understood that rape could happen in multiple ways. Mm -hmm. um, so it was, it's a very unique brand of journalism because it is both sort of being on the ground with the story. It is telling the story. It is creating fodder for advocates to, to create political and public change um, and then continuing to report on that change. So it's sort of like it's full, full cycle um, journalism, but we, we call it movement journalism. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's not, it's not mainstream journalism. It does something very different than what the mainstream media does. It did that then and it does that still today. Yeah. I mean, Ms. Historically and still today does a lot of work in the realm of advocacy, of destigmatization. You also work in the realm of advocacy and destigmatization. So I want to ask you about your own work now, Jen. You personally have been on a mission to destigmatize periods, menstrual periods. You've written about why six-week bans on abortion are not really six-week bans. 
um, because of how menstrual cycles work. Um, can you, you know, take up the charge right now to educate us on this particular point um, through your own research and your writing? I am so glad that this question is being asked. So, yes, I, I am um, among the, the hats that I wear, including Ms., including at um, NYU, where I also work. Um, I'm a menstrual advocate, and I've been involved in this work for about a decade. Largely, my work and my writing have been focused on both destigmatizing menstruation and making it a matter of public policy. So, thinking about the ways that menstruation has been absent from our public policy. And that includes everything from um, a phrase people probably know now, the tampon tax also mm -hmm. wasn't something that folks were super fluent in even a decade ago, to public leadership, public budgets for ensuring that access to menstrual products, menstrual education, information is intrinsic in our society. So that's a big piece of the work that I've been doing. And that's actually what brought me to Ms. It was one of the places where I started writing um, about this policy agenda. It has given me a front row seat to talk to legislators, members of Congress, state legislators who are increasingly important in, in the, the battles that we now face um, about periods. And guess what? You'd be shocked to learn that they didn't know a whole lot. Mm. Um, largely, I was in rooms with men um, who, if they weren't too embarrassed to talk about the topic, um, you know, they would betray some of the ignorance, the fact that these weren't conversations that they that they had. So this piece that you talk about around the six week bans, I wrote in September of 2021. The Supreme Court was teed up to hear the case Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization later that fall. It was going to be in December. Um, and that's the case that folks surely know was decided in June of 2022 that overturned Roe versus Wade. Um, but before the Dobbs arguments, the state of Texas had actually passed a, a law called SB8 that created civil penalties for people who would help other people to obtain an abortion. Basically, for all intents and purposes, made abortion inaccessible and unavailable in one of the largest states in this country that houses 10% of the population in this country. But what happened when that law went into effect that really sort of hit me like a ton of bricks was when Governor Abbott held a press conference um, and stood on the steps of the state house and announced to the people of Texas that there was nothing to worry about. This law was not extreme because it was a six-week ban and that meant you had six weeks to get an abortion. And I thought, oh my goodness, he either doesn't know anything about how our bodies work or he doesn't care. Um, he was either, you know, trying to, to mislead people or lying. It probably doesn't matter which it is. Um, but what really alarmed me was that probably the vast majority of people, when they think about what a six-week ban means, don't really stop and think about it from, you know, a quote-unquote menstrual literacy perspective. And so here's the headline. When a person discovers they're pregnant, the way pregnancy is counted, that would be at best four weeks from their last menstrual period, um, so that the first day you find out you're pregnant, you are four weeks pregnant already. So you have two weeks to get an abortion, not six. I actually had the um, good fortune to visit the White House. If you can imagine, I got to go to the White House to talk about periods with the Vice President of the United States. And, and I went in there with menstrual literacy as my charge. Right. Well, so destigmatizing taboo subjects is something that both of you have written about and thought a lot about. Um, so let's let's talk about that process of destigmatizing taboo, where whereas in the 1970s in the United States, you could have an institution like Ms. 
addressing taboos directly. And it's not like that work is anywhere near done uh, because obviously we're still trying to confront taboos, destigmatize taboos. Um, Samita, my childhood, part of which was in India, showed me a complete absence of unwillingness to discuss things like menstruation, things like abortion. They just were not part of the conversation. How did popular media in India at the time subversively reveal the presence of taboos and destigmatize them? Yeah, that's a great question. And again, 1960s Hindi cinema is interesting because its legacy is often as the kind of bad decade, like a decade of indulgence that focused on like couples romancing each other and traipsing through picturesque locations, singing and dancing that was completely out of touch with the on the ground realities. Like this is a decade of such economic strife, political agitation. It's a very volatile moment in India and in the world. But to me, what's fascinating is love as such an important and even in some ways out of reach possibility. So filmmakers like, I'm going to show you a clip in a second, K.A. Abbas, who espoused very like left progressive politics, often with films that had very like working class protagonists. So a sort of cinema of the people in a way tended to have this plot hierarchy where the heroes would sacrifice their romantic interests to their work, to build the nation, to build their communities, etc. But one of the problems with this is that it reifies the set of associations between work and certain types of activism as a sort of masculine domain of like important like political agitation, where romance is sort of in the feminine domain, it's secondary, it's a personal thing rather than a public thing. And I argue that actually love in South Asia, and this is, I think, part of its like on-screen ubiquity in a way as the heart of the films, is so important as a place where you have these politics of boundaries between castes, communities, ethnic groups, etc. So this importance of love in breaking down those boundaries becomes really important where it's films that have this outsized portrayal of this. So I'll show you a clip. This is a dream sequence from this fascinating Indo-Russian co-production from 1957-58. Tell me, my beautiful and wondrous one, that you love me. It's him dreaming about love me? being with his Indian love interest. Yes, yes, you know it. My love is as pure as the Ganges water. But saying the organization of the world doesn't allow for their romance across their religious and national differences. My darling, my bride before God. Will you marry me? No, it's impossible. We belong to different countries. We belong to different religions. I can't be your wife, my darling. Oh, God! Where is your truth? Why is the world organized this way? Answer me, or I'll rebel. Wow. 
<laughs> so this conversation is so stimulating and wide ranging. And what you were just saying, Samhita, reminded me of Bell Hooks, the recently departed feminist um, writer and scholar. She has a lot to say about love. In fact, she has a book called All About, All love. about love. And she says that feminism, when it's at its best and when it's most resilient and durable, is driven by a love ethic. And so I'm thinking about um, if we can ask both of you, maybe, Jen, we can turn things back to you. We've been talking about film. We've been talking about print media. We've been talking about representation. Why does democracy need feminism to your mind? Oh, my Jen? goodness. That's sort of the question. That's, that's, that's really the actually question. the question of the moment. I think that when we think about actually true democracy, when we think about justice, uh, when we think about both liberation and liberty, we think about freedom, all words actually that have been grabbed by opposing forces, you know, freedom actually being very much a sort of like a, a right-wing organizing frame. And on the flip side, when we think about um, rising authoritarianism and white nationalism in this country, gender equity and gender justice it, it is, is posed as the enemy to that. And the systems of democracy are so at risk right now, whether it's lack of fair representation through gerrymandering, whether it's, you know, private interests and, and big money flooding our system. And that's, I think that's fully intertwined too. So it's not just that our democratic systems are about actually supporting a feminist future, but it's that feminism is inherent to democracy, which is why there are such extraordinary oppositional forces to it right now. Samita, India is the world's largest democracy. In the period you are writing about most of your work, India elected a woman prime minister and did so long before most of the rest of the world made such a move. In fact, this country has yet to make such a move. How did that reflect upon this relationship between feminism and democracy in India? And is there an association in India between the, the status of women, the dignity of women and the health of democracy? Yeah. Um, so facetiously, a mentor of mine used to say, there should be as many dumb women in power as there are <laughs> dumb men. Um, and maybe someone else said that. I have no idea. Um, but Indira Gandhi's legacy is one of a very draconian, authoritarian, kind of dynastic leader. She was the daughter of the first Prime Minister Jawaharlal Nehru. And three South Asian countries, at least, Bangladesh, Pakistan, and India, have all had women as heads of state, unlike countries like ours. And, and Myanmar almost did, and then yeah, took her yeah, away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yet the idea of a feminine figure of the nation is reified, this idea of the motherland or mother as nation to sort of privilege the sons of the nation. So often it's the mother who gives birth to sons. There's a certain imagination of a very, very male kind of fraternity that is naturalized to that idea of mother as nation. Um, the other thing kind of picking up Emily's question as well, like why is feminism important to democracy? If the promise of democracy is this radical egalitarianism and a society of equality, then feminism is about not only rejecting hierarchies that devalue women, but feminism more largely is about rejecting any hierarchies that put humans 
in a continuum of value that values some and devalues others, race, class, caste, etc. Well, it's time for us now to take a few questions from our audience. Um, when you have the mic, uh, please tell us your first name and where you're from. Um, hello, I'm Hetvi. I'm from India and a student at UVA. I was just wondering, I've not seen a lot of the 60s, 70s Bollywood movies, but I have grown up on the 90s and early 2000s uh, movies. And I feel like the 60s when Jaya Bhadri was in the cinema and things like that, the characters that they portrayed, the women they portrayed, had like uh, some sort of three-dimensionality, which I think uh, we don't see very often in the 90s movies. And I know you're drawing like parallels between like the government and what the cinema is trying to portray. And I'm wondering what changed or what shifted for um, the 90s popular movies to be um, kind of like one directional in that sense. That's a tough question because there is so much variation and some films did have extremely archetypal characters in the 60s as well as in the 90s. There is a lot of change in the 90s, certainly. Um, this is the moment where the film industry is given official industry status, which prior to the 90s had never been the case in the case of Hindi cinema, despite its popularity in the world. Um, another big change that you see definitely from the 50s um, is that while this earlier moment often tended to have like very working class sort of everyday protagonists, men and women, that has shifted a lot where increasingly you have, on the one hand, the content of the film featuring very different types of, for example, extremely elite um, heroes or heroines in some cases, but also the segmentation of audiences in terms of viewing practices. Whereas in an earlier period, these films would be sort of everything for everyone. Now in sort of single screen theaters or whatever, now you have sort of like very high end air conditioned theaters versus, you know, smaller single screen theater in say poorer neighborhoods. So that segmentation also reflects certain segmentation of films themselves. Maybe one of the things is also like if you were to continue to watch, I think at a distance, like things that maybe women in the 60s would have been outraged by seem refreshing because they just seem different. So the ruts that they're stuck in, in terms of problematic gendered patterns are just different from the ruts in say the 90s onwards. We have one more question from our audience. Oh, hi. Um, my name is Courtney. Um, thank you so much for this talk. My, my question is about why or how abortion has come to be so central to feminism, why it makes us free, why it makes us liberated. Um, and sorry, just a little background, I guess, because I found some compelling arguments from like pro-life feminists and the language Samita was using about the continuum of value um, for human beings is the same language that people on the right will use when they're talking about abortion. They're talking about, you know, the continuum of a human, whether it's in the womb or outside of the womb. So why, yeah, why is abortion so central and necessary for women to be equal? So, I mean, 
it, it, it's a it's a it's an extensive large debate, and I will answer this with sort of shorter clips. Um, I think that bodily autonomy is part of um, liberation, um, and the ability and the freedom to make those decisions for oneself is paramount um, to live in an equal society. Um, so that's sort of the quickest answer that I will give to that right here and now, knowing that we all are guided by different principles and different truths. Where that sort of falls in with democracy, um, there it, it kind of is two sides of a coin, right? On the democracy piece of it, um, what we experienced actually um, with the Dobbs decision were so many breakdowns in our democracy um, that let everything from what's how state legislatures look right now and who's in leadership and who are making those decisions, you know, to who sits on the Supreme Court, all of that has direct connections to the troubled state of our democracy right now. Um, and the idea that we had a democratic outcome um, through the lead up to Dobbs and the decision itself is also, I think, a very, very crucial conversation to have about representation um, in our society. So hopefully that was a sufficient answer for that question, which is a very big and bold question. I appreciate it. Thank you. Should we go to one more question? Uh, my name is Steve, and I'm from Sarasota, Florida. And as a man, I'm going to say something that may be a little bit heretical. I think that in some ways, women might actually make better political leaders than men. And so um, I'd like to hear what your opinions are on that uh, topic. Why don't you jump in first? You Let's hear from to go. both of you on that. <laughs> Yeah, as I started to say, I guess my implication was that um, it is important to not discriminate against women holding office or being elected or having political power. But perhaps even more importantly, again, what kind of feminist politics do they bring to office? So again, to take the example of Indira Gandhi, many think that the biggest lost opportunity for this huge democracy was actually when she in 1975 suspended the constitution and declared an emergency. A political moment of crisis was dealt with brutally by force and a clamp down on dissent instead of a political process to work through that Descent. And what we see now in India in terms of like a Hindu nationalist, more right wing politics has been a reaction to the authoritarian and dynastic politics that she represented. So neither is feminist in any sense. So on the one hand, yes, we should be electing women leaders and the gap is one to address, but so is the kind of content of their politics. Well, I, I would second that wholeheartedly. Um, and, you know, it's interesting in 1972 and among the founders of Ms. were the creators of the National Women's Political Caucus and the gender equity in political representation and in participation in the franchise were a key goal. Um, and we've made we've actually made great strides since then. I mean, the world looked a lot different in 1972. And I do think that is a positive advance. I do think as well that the sort of politics of feminism lends itself to better progressive outcomes and better politics. And I think that many of the ways that women are 
socially conditioned, the kinds of values or the kinds of attributes um, would also lend themselves to better leadership if we had the imagination to look at leadership differently. So all of that can be true at the same time, that there can be women leaders who don't reflect that, who don't espouse that, who don't bring that to the body politic. So the answer is it's not simple. We've yet to perfect the experiment, so um, we don't have proof either way. If you asked me if, if my instinct is to want to support more women in leadership, the answer is 100% yes. Um, but I don't necessarily think that's the panacea. I think, though, that is the path. Well, Jennifer Weiss-Wolf, Samita Sunya, thank you so much for joining us on Democracy in Danger. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you. Jennifer Weiss-Wolf is the author of Periods Gone Public. She was the inaugural Women in Democracy Fellow at the Brennan Center for Justice. She's Director of Strategy at Ms. Magazine, and she's now at NYU Law. You can read some of her work in the magazine's new retrospective, 50 Years of Ms. Samita Sunya is an Associate Professor of Cinema at the University of Virginia. She studies film history, media circulation, and gender dynamics across cultures. You should check out her first book from the University of California Press. It's called Sirens of Modernity. Well, that is all for this live episode of Democracy in Danger. In a couple of weeks, we'll bring you the story of a tenacious activist from Belarus. So all of us were sentenced to 12 years of imprisonment, and all of us are supposed to be deprived of citizenship. Stay in touch in the meantime. We're on Instagram and on what normally was known as Twitter at DND Podcast. That's D-I-N-D Podcast. Or leave a comment on our webpage, dindanger.org. Find links to what we're reading, great images, and more about our guests. Democracy in Danger is produced by Robert Armagall, Nicholas Scott, and Stephen Betts. Ariana Aronson edits our social media. Adine Yeager engineers the show with help from Ellie Salvatierra. Our interns are Charlie Burns, Lena Freyhat, Katie Pyle, Maktoum Morad Shah, and Caroline Yu. Special thanks this time to all of the staff at Lighthouse Studio and to our friends at the podcast, Village Squarecast. Support comes from the University of Virginia's College of Arts and Sciences. We are a project of UVA's Karsh Institute of Democracy, and we're part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. The show is distributed by the Virginia Audio Collective of WTJU Radio right here in Charlottesville. I'm Emily Burrell. And I'm Siva Vadianathan. Until next time. Thank you for listening to this episode from the Democracy Group. If you want more podcasts like this, then visit democracygroup.org. There you will find our events, topics, and a newsletter as well. So head on over to democracygroup.org.